Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. How are you? That's becoming your typical intro phrase, Lance. I'm doing great. I know, but it's true. I'm not just saying it just for the sake of conversation. I'm actually doing exceptional. Well, good to hear. And uh, we are all exceptional because of our guest today. In this episode, we speak with author Carolyn Smith-Morris. She's a medical anthropologist and also an associate professor of anthropology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Now, you might be asking yourselves why we are speaking to Ms. Smith-Morris. She wrote a couple of articles for a, an organization called Cultural Survival, and you can check it out, culturalsurvival.org. Uh, if you have the wherewithal to contribute to this cause, it is a very good cause. Uh, she is a advocate. She is a spokesperson for indigenous people, mostly uh, indigenous women, and we approached her for an interview about the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic that's been going on for years and years. And she was very gracious and willing to talk about it. Super smart, super knowledgeable, uh, and a great, great person, a great human being. And this is uh, sort of the beginning of you and I, Tim, uh, doing more of these episodes. We have another one coming up in a, in a couple of weeks with someone who's also very in involved with this movement. And uh, this is uh, the first one. We're kicking it off with uh, Miss Smith-Morris. Yeah, I think it's really interesting work that Carolyn Smith-Morris does. And this uh, interview is really interesting. And I learned a lot, Lance, because as you said, we're kind of just uh, starting our journey into this um, this tragedy, this really uh, epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. So I'm really happy that we are uh, learning about this subject here on Crawlspace. So check out the very important work that the people over at Cultural Survival do. It's culturalsurvival.org. And again, if you have anything to give, you can be a sustaining member for just a couple of bucks a month. It really goes a long way, again, for their important work. Okay, everybody, I hope you like this episode. Thanks a lot for listening. podcast, Carolyn Smith-Morris. How are you today? Doing well. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. You you do a lot of really good work in, uh, in a certain area of uh, culture, and um, I, I want to talk about that, but first, obviously, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join us. You're, you are also a... Um, a medical anthropologist? Did I did I read that correctly? Am I should we be intimidated by you at all? Definitely, it's a mouthful. No, uh, not to be intimidated. That's that's a social science job. We're not actually doctors. We play one on TV. Uh, the uh, medical the world of medical anthropology is about culture and healing and uh, how, those, how those things come together in people's experience. So we, we work with living human beings, and we work all over the world trying to make sure health and, and people's experience of, of illness or health uh, gets recognized and gets, uh, gets cared for well by those that claim to be healers, to be physicians and nurses and therapists. Wow. It's taken me a little bit to wrap my head around that, but how did you get involved with that side of, of uh, cultural, I guess, um, uh, betterment, empowerment? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a little easier to understand with, with a story. I, uh, 
when I was an undergrad in college. I took an anthropology class, thought that was fun. And uh, the, the woman that I took the class from was doing uh, indigenous rights work in, in Australia. She was, uh, there was a new law that had come out called the Native Title Act. And she was helping these people document uh, their place in this particular location over generations of, of that community. And uh, she was, in addition to uh, talking about their, their housing and their kinship diagrams and their religious ceremonies, she was also talking about how being away from their homes and having to be moved around uh, in uh, particular communities where the dominant white population would would really let them live, uh, how hard that was on their bodies physically and and clearly mentally. Uh, so there was a lot of health involved with what we were, uh, what she was studying, and that's where I got my start in uh, New South Wales, Australia. So fast forward, golly, uh, ten years. I went back uh, to get my own PhD, and uh, the another indigenous community, the Gila River Indians in Arizona, just down the road from where I was in school, um, were dealing with a diabetes epidemic. And they needed help. This, uh, this hospital clinic had sent out a call uh, for, for help from uh, students who would work for free, helping them understand a problem that would get, they would gather some data uh, on the reservation in, out in the community. And uh, so I signed up to do that. And that's where I got uh, my, my start in the United States uh, on this relationship between uh, being indigenous, being native, and trying to live that uh, native life way uh, in the contemporary industrial world. And that's such a hard thing to do because um, that, that indigenous lifestyle really demands some things and, and asks for some things that are anathema. They're just co totally contrary to, to capitalist industrial urban lifestyles. So that's really, that's really where, where most of my work is. Uh, that's, as a medical anthropologist, that's where I spend my space, talking about health and illness among uh, marginalized communities in largely urban spaces. Wow. And you wrote a book as well, Indigenous Communalism. <laughs> Nailed that on first try. Wow. I wasn't going to try it. <laughs> you got it. It is. Indigenous Communalism. Uh, thanks for... for uh, for asking about that, communalism is is something that we all do, right? It's it's our willingness to um, have a roommate, or um, you know, not beat them up over eating your last, you know, turkey sandwich. It's uh, it's your willingness to wear a mask out in in public. It's your uh, willingness to tolerate fluoride in the water. Um, communalism, we. We have we have had times in our nation's history where we've talked about um, communalism as as the worst possible political uh, idea on the planet. Uh, that it takes away individual freedoms. And and coming from Texas, I live in Texas. Um, it, it's pretty easy to to draw that out in conversation. It's pretty easy to bump up against people's concern about their individual liberties, but we're all giving up individual liberties all the time. Uh, it's, it's human nature to live a social life. And so every community around the world, every individual 
around the world um, makes those decisions on a daily basis. Where am I going to be selfish? Where am I going to be altruistic? Where am I uh, going to really just take one for the, for the bigger team? And so indigenous communalism is about this remarkable political and kind of social moment we're in right now. Uh, since 2007, um, the world has become much more aware of indigenous peoples and how they have survived colonialism. They, they are still around and they're not going anywhere and, and uh, majority of nations around the world don't don't want them to disappear. We're, we're, we're not trying to assimilate them anymore. We, we value that lifestyle and we are, we are eager to, to manage it in, in certain ways. And uh, so my latest book is about what, what is it that we're managing? Do we really just want to carve out a reservation and then hope they're okay? Uh, the answer to that, of course, is no. Uh, that, that doesn't work uh, all by itself. They have to, uh, those communities need to be able to participate in the global marketplace, the global community of thought, uh, and, and to have access to technology and um, scientific advances, uh, just like every other community around the world. So um, since 2007, when we passed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, we've really been trying to sort that out. I, I, sh I, sh I shouldn't say we, I would say Indigenous communities are trying to explain to us white people uh, what that means and how they can get there. Uh, so as, a, as an academic and as a non-Indigenous academic, um, I wrote that book to, to convey what I've learned uh, as an outsider in that space about living communally and, and um, protecting uh, that Indigenous peoples and all peoples' ability to decide for themselves. Being that uh, non-Indigenous uh, individual, um, being that outsider that you just described, did you find any pushback from the Indigenous community when you first approached to, to do research on this and, and to, um, I guess, explore their culture? Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, I, I, I definitely um, learned, learned some lessons about humility uh, early on, and I, and I continue to need to learn those and do learn those uh, every day or so. The situation is, is different in every indigenous community with respect to capacity and uh, readiness and goals for self-determination. And what that means is uh, some communities are ready to, uh, you know, they've got their own uh, community member lawyers, uh, they've got an established system of governance, um, they have technological resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for achieving the goals that they want for, for their community. Um, others don't have that, and so they're more willing to call on consultants or so-called experts um, for particular help. And I've really enjoyed a career that has, has spanned um, some different eras of um, indigenous community capacity. So uh, at in the beginning, they they were happy to have an ethnographer who would uh, work with community members to gather data about community member experience. That's basically what my books are about, is um, ethnographies of the local culture and bringing narratives, bringing community member stories to light that uh, weren't very well known before. Um, but after some years, and, and hopefully, uh, 
a, a variety of scientists like me training people as they go along, those communities now have their own capacity and they don't need us doing that. They can, they can do it themselves. And uh, so I've, I've been able to kind of shift and, and publish then about how they are doing that so that other communities can learn from them. Um, so yeah, there's definitely pushback. There, there is a ton of capacity in tribal communities um, and indigenous communities around the world and, and researchers uh, ignore that at their peril. <laughs> uh, they, can, they can really, really screw some things up if, if, if they're disrespectful of that. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of pride that goes along with, uh, you know, a community that's so in, you know, knitted in the fabric of, of culture, you know? So yeah, I, I don't know if I would be able to figure out a way to, to get in there nurture that relationship and, and take something out of it without being, um, <laughs> without being totally intimidated and, and saying, okay, this isn't my business. Yeah. Well, I've had that, I've had that feeling as well. Um, one of the communities that I work in, uh, turned out all researchers for a period of time. And so I, you know, packed up my bags and, and walked away, you know, with gratitude for the time that I did have there. Um, but the, you know, for, for a social scientist like me, or at least one that has the perspective that I have, you're thrilled to see that uh, capacity uh, develop. And so uh, now I've uh, recently been working with an organization I've admired since I was a kid, Cultural Survival. They put out a magazine about indigenous peoples around the world. Uh, they have been doing this work, this capacity building work and advocacy work. And now it's infused the, the whole uh, community working inside cultural survival is indigenous peoples. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. Now to be able to just volunteer with them and learn from them and support the agendas uh, that I recognize and understand uh, and trying to write, uh, you know, just trying to help. They, they are, they are uh, a machine of productivity trying to communicate the message, trying to impact not only legal processes, laws within nation states, but also in the international space, right? So up to the international non-governmental organizations, um, up to the United Nations, they're writing reports that the, the UN reads, right, and, and takes into consideration in their ongoing monitoring of situations. And, and it is through the work of organizations like Cultural Survival and many, many others, as well as nation state, some, you know, nation state bodies, uh, and, and of course, uh, the tribal organizations or the indigenous organizations themselves. It is through all of that work that you do eventually see change. Um, one of the things that's kind of happening now in our generation is that there, there are platforms like Crawlspace that can convey what's happening. What are people working on? And that brings more people to the conversation that, that expands the, the technological space, the, the information space that they can fill. Uh, and that's how laws get written. That's how uh, change happens at a global level. It's remarkable uh, the type of impact that they can have if they get that, that boost. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I, I was about to, uh, to yell at you because uh, you were just too smart for me. And uh, I felt like you were trying to show me up uh, with that last answer, uh -oh. Uh -oh. but but then you complimented us, so I'll I'll drop it. <laughs> no, man, it's it's true. It's uh, it's it's 
um, it's the media space. It's, it's you guys that are, you know, and, and particularly, you know, so when I, uh, when I was uh, climbing around your, your web space, there's, there's work that you all are doing that's, you know, part entertainment, but it's part advocacy for, you know, people that are really suffering, uh, you know, singular cases of missing people or um, unsolved crimes and, and hardship and the like. And, and, you know, and it seems to go one person at a time, one storyline at a time. But when it hit, when you, when you create pr- platforms like this, it, it, it creates the community. You guys are, are no longer just reflecting that community of people. You're actually creating them because they're coming together around you. Um, that's exactly what uh, MMIW is about, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and, and the article that you found me through. Uh, that is about tweeting and, and Facebook and finding people because somebody was smart enough to put a spotlight on it. Yeah, and that is how we, uh, how we found you. Um, you wrote an article that's on culturalsurvival.org. So, uh, and real quick, if anyone wants to go to that website, it's culturalsurvival.org. And you can um, click the little, uh, the little menu uh, hamburger in the left-hand corner and go to Donate Now. And you can donate $25 a month. And you don't even realize that you're donating 25 bucks a month, but it goes a long way. So um, that would be really cool if we had some people that were contributing to that because that goes towards, you know, the cost of, of running the website, the cost of getting the, the word out there, the cost of um, creating these bills, everything that you just described. Like it's every, it, it takes a little bit of fuel to keep this going and make a difference. Yeah. Makes a ton of fuel. Yeah. Um, but your article is really what stood out. The the epidemic, you said, addressing the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And a quick aside, I've always had an interest in this and, and a desire to cover this, but to do it right and to find someone like yourself who can do it right and speak about it with, with the experience um, is really awesome. There's a book that really kind of put me over the top um, called Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, and and it was about the, the it's terrifying the systematic elimination the termination of the Osage. Am I saying that right? Is the Osage tribe? I think it's Osage. Osage. So the the systematic termination of the Osage tribe, all because of money, all because. They happened to be on the land that had the oil that that was making them millionaires and white men would go in and infiltrate the families and systematically kill the generations until they would be willed the money years, generations later. It was absolutely terrifying. So that that kind of put me over the top with uh, seeing that this is, in fact, an an epidemic. Um, I know I just unpacked a lot right there, but I needed to get it out of my system. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, it's it it does need to be uh, kind of said and and for for a lot of people to get um, that and more out of their systems. The the, the epidemic aspect of it uh, is is interesting. You know, I chose that word carefully, and I think it's it's going to ring in people's ears a lot right now because of of COVID and and the the health situation we're in. Um, epidemic just means you know an exceptionally high rate, right? Well, this kind of stuff has been going on for indigenous people since the 15th century. Uh, so it's not exceptionally high to them. It's just that it's hitting the awareness 
of dominant communities. And this is not to trash white culture. Uh, I'm white myself, I, I love my culture. There's a lot to white culture that I think is positive. Um, but there is plenty in history that we have not, uh, as you said, unpacked. We have not grappled with it. And because we haven't grappled with it, it's still happening. Uh, that's, that's why we study history, right? That's why we, we have school. We have public schools and we teach children history. It's so that we don't make the same mistakes. Um, and so some of the mistakes have to do with, uh, well, money, <laughs> as you said, and as uh, Graham says, it, it is about money. Ultimately, people are competing for resources and money is one of the most important ones. But the other thing uh, that it involves is, is governance and self-determination. And uh, the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic is, is also, it's, it's definitely about colonization and reservation spaces and uh, the presence of capitalist endeavors by non-native peoples near reservations. All of that is definitely true. Uh, money is definitely present in this problem. But another problem is that is governance, is figuring out how can these indigenous communities um, be, you know, live their best lives inside nations, right? Inside the United States, for example. And so, uh, and, and really the leadership on, on this issue, I would have to say came from Canada, as well as from a lot of smart people in Washington state in the United States, a lot of indigenous people working for decades to try to draw attention to um, what is essentially a gap in coverage, a gap in uh, legal coverage. These uh, women and girls are being uh, abducted or killed in spaces near the reservation. Uh, in some cases, their bodies uh, left on the reservation or thought to be they're missing and thought to be on the reservation or they went missing on the reservation. There are a lot of question marks about these cases. And we don't know who is responsible for following up. If it's on the reservation, then it should be left to the tribes. But if it involves non-reservation people, and in the vast majority of cases it does, then the federal government is supposed to get involved. And the MMIW epidemic is is about these cases that have gone cold because we can't agree on who is supposed to follow up. We can't agree whether we're supposed to send the FBI, whether we're supposed to send the state police, or whether we're supposed to send the tribal police in to deal with this case and how do they cooperate and who's funded to do it. Um, so that, uh, yes, there's definitely money ultimately <laughs> at the base of this, but that is really about, uh, governance and communication and uh, solving crises in a shared space. How, how can that be solved? I, I, the awareness is great, but is, does it have to be legislatively? Boy, that's a great question. And I will find you a lawyer <laughs> to talk to. Um, legislation that can support um, tribal autonomy is is always helpful because because that allows tribes to seek help when they need it to seek collaborative help when they need it uh, but at the same time you need funding on the federal side to respond to tribal collaborative requests 
if tribes reach out and say, we need help on this case because we think there's a jurisdiction overlap, um, that also has to be funded. So funding has to be present on both sides. So yes, it's, it's legislation uh, on the federal government side to, to support those collaborative efforts, but they've got to be cross-national efforts. They've got to be uh, efforts that continue to respect tribal autonomy and self-governance. Who are the people that are committing these crimes? Well, uh, statistics tell us that the majority um, of, un of cases that are understood are happening in these remote areas on or near uh, uh, native reservations where development projects, private development projects are, under are underway. So these are forestry projects, these are mining projects, um, and other kind of ventures that involve temporary, uh, predominantly male labor. Uh, so you have these, what are called man camps of, of men working for weeks and months at a time in very remote settings uh, on their hours or days off. The, the, the closest community for companionship or to go get a drink or whatever uh, they wanna do is often a tribal community. Um, and then those relationships start to go sour. Then um, power dynamics and colonial dynamics of exploitation and privilege uh, seem to be producing a criminal um, outcome, just this, this repeated criminal outcome. So uh, I, I'm, I'm drastically simplifying um, the context, but uh, what I think your other guests will, will tell you is that um, it's, it's, it's an impossible dynamic. It's a lawlessness uh, because of this lack of jurisdiction um, in these development projects that may or may not have been uh, welcome or approved uh, by the tribe anyway, and uh, and they and they get out of they get out of control because uh, it it becomes known uh, to both tribal and non-tribal communities in the area. It becomes known. Uh, that uh, crimes will not be litigated, P crimes will not be caught, pursued, litigated, um, and punished in these spaces. Uh, and that is, is a structural problem. That is a regular, persistent, uh, many tribal communities would say colonizing uh, structural event that just happens over and over and over again. And that gets us back to money. Uh, and so companies have to be confronted about uh, demand camps, about uh, managing their employees, about the resources that are available, about supervision of those employees. Tribes have to be involved. Uh, there, there is a lot to it, but um, there are some, uh, the, the most important reforms are, are multi-pronged. Right, so, so supporting the autonomy of tribes to follow up and to say what they think the resolution will be since it's their community members that are being uh, killed and harmed um, with the private companies because it is money driving this thing uh, and, and they have to be controlled, that has to be built into the contracts that let them into the space in the first place. And then with the federal government, uh, as, as you were asking Tim about, uh, you know, legislative reform and funding uh, that keeps those issues forward. Hypothetically speaking, if I were the father of an indigenous young woman and a night goes by and she doesn't come home and another night comes goes by and she doesn't come home, who's the first person I call? Well, 
the first person we see them call, um, or, or some of them, some of them, I think, up to now, sadly, uh, some of the most effective platforms for them or people to go to have been social media, getting the word out. Um, that's that's a fairly traditional response. It's also a, a fairly human response. You start looking around at your own networks. Um, and uh, this is what the article was partially about. Being able to use social media in that way has been a huge help. Um, not necessarily because more women are being found uh, before they're harmed or even their, their murders uh, solved, um, but simply because it's helped bring attention to the issue. Uh, so, so then the next person that they would call, of course, would be tribal authorities. If, if, and it depends on the community. Do, do the tribal authorities uh, respond well? Are, are they on good terms with the tribal authorities? Are the tribal authorities even around? Um, is this family member living in some urban setting because they moved there in the 1960s as part of the federal uh, relocation program that's uh, itself an assimilating program. It, it's just as colonial as the reservation system was uh, 150 years ago. Um, you know, what context are they working in? So they, they may call the tribal police, um, but they may simply call their local police in some non-tribal setting. Uh, and, and we're back to the problem I was describing. Uh, the jurisdictional lines are different in, in, in every case. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And you also had a really interesting part of your article about patterns that the uh, coroners take part in with um, just having bad paperwork. And, and if a body is found, they don't even specify a race. They put other like where is that coming from? Yeah, the, the, the work of coroners is pretty hard. Um, I've thought about. I've thought about that particular job many times in, in my own career because uh, coroners also have to name a cause of death. Um, it could have been many things. It's, it's hard to figure out which came first. Uh, uh, again, yes, they, only they can only uh, fill out that paperwork based on uh, the information they can read off of a body if they have one, um, if they have a complete record, uh, if they if they have information about where the body was situated, there's so much to forensic medicine um, that is a scientific process. They're going to make a hypothesis, but ultimately, uh, and again, it depends on the coroner, but ultimately that coroner has to make the best decision he sure they can make at the time um, based on very limited evidence. And of course, that's the problem. Uh, in these missing and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, cases is there's just not very much information. The bodies are hidden. They're, they've, they're deteriorated. Um, the evidence is not complete. And the coroners are ever worse. Uh, in, in my other work, I, uh, 
most of my work has been on diabetes. We had talked about uh, illness and, and if there's a single disease that kind of encapsulates so much of history and, and trauma and a bad diet and industrial urban living, uh, if there's one, one experience that sums it up, it's diabetes. And uh, for many years, coroners uh, would not uh, see diabetes. 70 years ago, 70, 80 years ago, diabetes was not the first thing on their list when they were naming the cause of death because, of course, it was a heart attack or a stroke or something else, and that's what they would list, which is perfectly good forensic science. But over time, speaking of epidemics, over time, as people realize how much diabetes is in the world, and coroners realize this is not so rare, they start using that as the cause of death. They start naming a different disease process as the cause of death. And so, yes, rates are going up, but a, the coroner community's willingness to use diabetes, to name diabetes as the cause of death, as opposed to the corresponding heart attack or stroke, uh, comes into place. And so we've, uh, we see these changes over time. Science is improving, you know, records, records do improve, but it reflects a very, very complex uh, environment. What a what a frustrating uh, a predicament to to be in as a as a society as a culture. Um, and there's a lot of these advocacy groups for the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, does every state have one? How many states have has a has an advocacy group? Uh, good question. I don't know the answer to that, uh, but uh, th largely because they are community driven. Uh, these groups are formed by typically volunteer uh, indigenous community members. Um, uh, Jody Voice, uh, with whom I worked to to write the article that you've already uh, mentioned, uh, did this in her own time. She she learned these skills in high school. She was concerned about the issue. She was concerned about some of her her own. Uh, community members, uh, and and she just ran with it. Uh, she she started using social media platforms that were available to her, and she, then she started getting advice from um, kind of uh, remarkable leaders in our local uh, North Texas region uh, for how to speak publicly, how to pull people together, um, how to harness the energy, political and otherwise. Um, around an issue and and she just got out in front of it so so they crop up where there is need and where there is a kind of energized charismatic person to do it um I'm, I'm, i hope that we can find more of them as we go yeah absolutely uh what kind of reaction does um i guess if whoever they're lobbying towards what, what's the reaction typically if they're if they're if they're marching if they're if they're forming some sort of um i guess rally where do they go and, and you know, who are they lobbying uh, to? What a great question. So, yeah, the response, the community response, it has actually been swift in some areas, at least what I have seen in North Texas. What happens is uh, these are issues that do concern people. They, they, are, are, they are natural um, lightning rods uh, because it's so reasonable for a good response. Um, it's so reasonable to expect a good response. Um, 
And so people naturally respond once they learn, once uh, they can see that the uh, problem exists, once the statistics are made available, once the, the story of it, a reliable, plausible story is told about it, people do respond quickly. Um, the the uh, Women's March, the annual Women's March uh, in Dallas asked uh, Ms. Voice to, to have her community, this missing and murdered indigenous women of Texas community, lead the march uh, within months of first learning about the issue at all. And so now, and I published a picture of this, MMIW Texas leading the Women's March by Eli Hickman, and, and, and it captures people's sensibility. It, it gives them that lightning rod to respond to, to care about, to send money to, to encourage, uh, because it's so simple. It's so straightforward. The average person doesn't want this to happen. The average person does not want to see these types of crimes be neglected. We, 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 we know that we can handle this. Um, intellectually, socio-politically, the, the, the resolution is not that hard. It's just getting enough people together around it to address it. Um, and, and again, thanks, thanks to you guys for drawing attention to it uh, and, and to any other media platform that can keep attention on it until the epidemic is resolved. Now, you said that a lot of this is um, what is posted on social media, hashtags, uh, things like that, just to keep the uh, profile uh, as, as, as like uh, high as possible. Um, what are some of the popular hashtags? What are some of the popular uh, tags that, that people can use, especially if they're going to listen to this episode and maybe uh, retweet it or, or, you know, post something on Instagram and, and open it up to others? Yeah, I would say the um, hashtag MMIW is the tag to use. Uh, that uh, there, there are some smaller ones, there are regionally specific ones, and there are other tags that you might um, find like hashtag not invisible um, that, that spin off and, and kind of support often a, a particular regional community. But I would go with uh, hashtag MMIW uh, to, to, to help raise the national and even international um, visibility of the issue because they really are, uh, they really do seem to be making more headway as an international, an internationally organized um, agenda uh, where they're, where they were just fighting these issues case by case, you know, girl by girl. Uh, it, it's too much work. Uh, my own family uh, has, has been through uh, this type of, you know, crisis before where you're trying to get attention from uh, uh, the police force or from the FBI. And it's just too much work for a family that's also holding down their own jobs and with limited resources. You've got to take advantage of the largest community you can reach. So I encourage people to uh, stick with MMIW uh, and, and to make themselves aware of, of people in similar situations. Uh, reach out for help in that way. Very good. And you um, also had another article on uh, cultural survival about, uh, it, it's titled Indigenous Peoples Turning to Traditional Knowledge on COVID-19 Response. What is this about and how how does this play into um, the, the, I guess, sociopolitical side of things? You're a champ, man. Thanks for asking. <laughs> 
so the the COVID nineteen epidemic, as as m many in your audience will already know, is hitting uh, marginalized communities disproportionately. It also uh, is particularly hard on uh, remote communities who do not have the same access to healthcare resources that some of us in cities have. And so that makes them more likely to stay at home, uh, not get care early on. Uh, so for those that do get sick from this disease and that need critical uh, help, hours, uh, certainly days, but even hours can matter. So indigenous communities, uh, particularly the rural and remote indigenous communities are extremely vulnerable uh, to this particular disease. And as I talk about in that article, uh, and uh, as Tim was asking before, these communal settings means that intergenerational households have a lot of people living in fairly close quarters. Uh, we know that uh, those households are sharing a lot more airspace than uh, our nuclear family white culture, <laughs> urban residents, or even single living, you know, divorced family uh, household settings in, in dominant culture. They're, they're just simply cultural patterns that interact with, with this virus in different ways. Um, so add to that uh, the history of trauma that leaves a scar on the body. Uh, and, and I'm not speaking figuratively there, I'm talking about chronic, high cortisol, which uh, leads to cellular inflammation, which can make you more vulnerable to certain diseases. There's, there's a lot of fun class <laughs> coursework in here I'm, I'm, uh, I'm playing with, but uh, we know that uh, your mental experience leaves a signature on your body every day, and that, that impacts how you will respond to disease. Uh, that's before we even get to how often uh, you're exposed to the virus. So uh, in, in, in trying to pay attention to put a spotlight on indigenous communities' experience of COVID, cultural survival is, is uh, doing uh, at least two important things. Number one, uh, they're talking about that uh, disproportionate effect on indigenous communities for that reason, for their isolation, but also for their, um, their economic and medical vulnerability. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they let me do this piece on traditional responses. And um, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about, about uh, some of these rural and remote groups uh, is, is how they remind us, you know, they've They've been living in those settings for many, many generations. They've figured out a lot of things about illness, and, and not all knowledge comes from the cities. And so they have their own quarantine practices. They know what to do in response to a sickness. Uh, they may not have the, the uh, microscopes, uh, or the virology experts to tell you exactly what's going on, but they know what to do about it. And if they can be allowed to practice those things, it's exactly the right response. It's the um, isolate, they're practicing isolation and quarantine. Um, in many situations, they need medicines. They do need help. They do need support. They need protective gear. Um, but uh, 
but they're not idiots. They're not idiots. Um, they're, they're very savvy people. And if they can be approached cooperatively, um, that's, that's the ideal. That's, that's the ideal for moving forward. Because uh, they won't survive. They, they, these communities are not going to survive if we continue to approach them um, in paternalistic, we've got this figured out kind of way. We've seen over and over again that when we cruise into these communities without full cooperation and understanding, we, we just spread disease. We don't mean to, but we just spread disease. Um, so uh, cultural survival is, is trying to shed light on both of those aspects, their, their strengths and capacities, but also their tremendous need. Pretty impressive. You wrote that article in uh, April, April 16th, it, it came out of this year, and that was maybe three weeks into three or four weeks into when everything started to get very real uh, in regards to COVID-19. Um, what have you heard in the, in the meantime uh, from these communities? Well, uh, we, uh, cultural survival continues to reach out to indigenous communities worldwide. Uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate to, to be working with them on their COVID map. Uh, and I encourage folks to uh, look at the um, map and consider the spread of disease um, all over the globe. We've got, we continue to see this pandemic spreading to remote areas of the globe. And while you, your listening audience might feel like we're starting to get the hang of it, we're not so, you know, uh, lost with the idea of wearing a mask or, or, or isolating ourselves, uh, there are parts of the world that are, are really facing the worst of it still. And cultural survival is making calls. We're making visits. Um, we've been lucky enough to uh, have a warm reception from Johns Hopkins, who is also, as you may know, uh, responsible for one of the best global tracking public health tracking programs uh, available right now. We've had a warm response to them uh, for trying to get more information from indigenous communities and cultural survival uh, is not only recording where we can, what the cases are, and they are, they are still rising. They are uh, quite bad in, in some areas and still quite out of control, uh, particularly in those most vulnerable remote settings. Um, but cultural survival is also tracking the human rights uh, impact of COVID-19. So as if, as if this disease were not bad enough, um, people are taking advantage of indigenous communities that are trying to isolate and quarantine. They're taking advantage of knowledge that an indigenous activist is home quarantined. Um, we've seen violence against some of those activists because uh, their, their uh, political enemies know their whereabouts. Um, and so cultural survival is trying to keep track of those and, again, shed light on these um, horrific events of, of people battling for basic human rights. Um, COVID-19 is just one more variable that... Uh, reflects that uh, multi-generation vulnerability. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify something that you just said. You, you said that some of the activists are actually being attacked. There, there's actual violence against some of the high-profile activists because their political enemies know that they are home due to COVID? 
that's unbelievable. Yeah, well, exactly. that's that's the political world, isn't it? Right? If if yeah. you live in a space where it's okay to attack your enemies, to to physically harm um, or or assault your enemies, uh, then you're going to take advantage of every horrible vulnerability they have, whether that's um, a COVID nineteen quarantine or the remoteness of their reservation or uh, a, a community that whose um, gender violence history is, is tolerated. Um, that vulnerability is too easily made worse by any number of these other variables. So I really appreciate you guys uh, shedding light on this and, and helping keep it in the public eye. That makes a huge difference because then your listeners will respond and demand uh, help get to these these people that need it. And you said previously, and you've done this uh, offline, you've connected us with other people who are involved with uh, missing and, and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, and we will have those individuals on. So uh, it's definitely not a one and done thing. If we have the opportunity to to keep talking about it um we'll spend you know 45 minutes a couple you know a couple a couple weeks out of the month on it doesn't matter uh we we really feel uh, passionately about it thank you so much thanks for that incredibly important work and for uh whatever work your listeners are doing to 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 respond to it thanks very much Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for spending the time talking to us. Ah, well, I get to go now to my class. I didn't get into this, but uh, half of my class is volunteering to make those calls to Indigenous communities to fill out that map. So uh, off I go.